So as we do every Sunday, let's read together and let us read aloud. Acts 17, beginning with verse 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we give you thanks and praise for another day of life, another day of living, and hopefully, Lord God, for all of us here, another day that we might live and walk in the presence and in the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit, the outpouring, the anointing of your Spirit upon each one here today, so that every word and every thought that is, that is stated would be, Lord, from you to our very hearts and minds, and that we ourselves, Lord God, would be attentive to not only hear, but to receive and to retain the wisdom that you desire for us to have today, and then to apply that wisdom and that understanding and that knowledge to our lives as we live in the hope of Christ's return. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. I know I have to say that because some of you might stay standing, but that's okay. People behind you wouldn't be able to see. I read the other day that Elvis Presley... By the way, he's dead. Just want you to know that. I read the other day that Elvis Presley, toward the end of his life, he wore all sorts of gold religious jewelry around his neck. All kinds of religious jewelry. Christian symbols. He wore Jewish symbols. He even, some said, had Muslim symbols. And wore all of his jewelry at the same time. And, and when somebody asked him why he did this, he said something to the effect that he was trying to make sure that all his bases were covered. And I'm not sure that the story is true, but I, I do know that this same principle was true in Athens, especially during Paul's visit there. I mean, it's been estimated as, as we were in chapter 17 last week, and as we'll be pressing on there today as well, you know, it's been estimated that when Paul walked around Athens, there were some 30,000 idols. 30,000 idols in the city of Athens, in the forms of the idols themselves, or temples, or shrines. 30,000 idols, which seems to say to us that they wanted to be sure that they didn't forget some god and make him mad. So they had this altar. This altar built to the unknown God. Well, it seems to me that they just wanted to make sure that all their bases were covered. Well, man is no different today. Man is no different today. When we last looked at chapter 17, we read an interesting observation of the Athenians on Mars Hill. By the way, Oropagus is, is Mars Hill. Uh, Ares, uh, 
the god Ares. Uh, his other name was Mars, and so they call it Mars Hill. But in Acts 17, verse 21, the observation that we read is this, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. You have to remember that they had their philosophies. There were more than just two, but they did have the primary philosophies of Epicureanism and the Stoicism. Uh, and, and, and those were the, the, the major philosophies. There were many others, but they would all meet in, at the Oropagus and they would talk about all of these new things. They, of course, had their Greek mythologies and all of their characters that were in Greek mythologies. None of them real, but uh, nonetheless, uh, they made the people practically believe that they were. So they were, they were just into information, weren't they? Men today like information not application. Men want just that information, get as much information as they can, but how many apply that? Because you see, the thing is, if it is wrong information, then the application is meaningless. If it's wrong information, the application is meaningless. Back in the early 19th century, Adam Clark described the situation of his day. He lived in England. And and notice how it applies to us in the 21st century. Listen to what Adam Clark wrote. He said, this is a striking feature of the city of London in the present day. Again, early 19th century. He said, The itch for news, which generally argues a worldly, shallow, or unsettled mind, is wonderfully prevalent. Here's the sad thing. Even ministers of the gospel, negligent of their sacred function, are become in this sense Athenians, just like those of Paul's time. So that the book of God is neither read nor studied with half the avidity and spirit as a newspaper. By the way, the word avidity uh, literally means either greed or hunger. So with that in mind, he is saying that the book of God is neither read nor studied with half the hunger and spirit as a newspaper. Early 19th century. And then he goes on to say, It is no wonder if such become political preachers and their sermons be no better than husks for swine. To such the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. Is that not a description of much of what we see in the 21st century, especially in the church today? where the Word of God is is no longer read or studied with a hunger. But information is, is more important. Not to apply, but just to know. That should provoke us today. As we stated last week, we need to be provoked by what we see in our nation today, what we see in the church today, that is not following the Word of God. And Paul, in his time, had been provoked and stirred by the rampant idolatry of Athens. And as I said last time, in that provocation, he never lost his focus. He never lost his focus because if he was provoked, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he was stirred to the heart, he didn't do anything but preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did we find Paul doing when when he was in Athens? He went immediately to the synagogue and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ there to the Jews and to the Gentiles that were there. And he would continue to carry this message through the streets of Athens, even into the Agora, even into the marketplace there, which prompted the philosophers then, as Paul was doing this, to take him to the Oropagus, to the Supreme Court of Athens, so that he would explain to them this new idea there before all of these philosophers, all of these intellects of Athens. And so we read in verses 19 and 20, They took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. We want to know what these things mean. What did he preach? He preached Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. And when we... Look at this address that he gives to the Oropagus. This address of Paul's is, is classic. It is a classic sermon. 
Now, some would argue and say, well, we don't see any mention of the cross. We don't see any mention of the blood of Christ. We don't see things that we would normally hear Paul say. But we have to understand, first of all, Paul had to know his audience, and he did. And he had to know what they needed to hear to be able to capture them to listen to what he had to say. And then we, had to, we have to understand that in the book of Acts, we don't get all of what took place, of course, just like in any other account. Look at the fact that we have four Gospels and we have four different accounts, but really of all the same thing from four different perspectives is not the different Gospel. It's not, it's not different Gospels, it's the same Gospel from four different perspectives. But uh, one thing we, we will always have to imply in our knowledge of Paul is that he was a, ba- a man of prayer, he was a man who sought the face of God, and he was a man who would not do anything but preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which included the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So with this implication in, in our understanding here, we realize that Paul never lost his focus in preaching the gospel because he was stirred. And Paul's sermon here reminds us of a second consideration. Last week we said that we are to get stirred and not to lose our focus. Today we are to get stirred but not to lose our footing. Get stirred but don't lose your footing. Your footing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today one of the sad things in the church is that man has lost their footing, preachers have lost their footing, and they've watered down the word of God, and they've gone on to other things rather than Genesis to Revelation. So we need to get stirred when things provoke us, but we don't lose our footing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go back to verse 22 in Acts 17, and we begin here. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And again, and I'll point this out again, but Paul wasn't complimenting them. He says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one, to whom, uh, or the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So Paul used this opportunity. In all the things that he saw in Athens, he, he especially saw this one... Uh, temple or uh, as it were this this object of worship that had an inscription to the unknown god and he used that he used that to the to, to open a door with these athenians and to tell them you know that unknown god you you, you don't know i know him i know him and i'm going to and i want to tell you about him and so the door is open and as paul stood up to speak he says i perceive in all things that you're very religious And as I said last time, this wasn't a compliment. And I'll tell you why. Because the word used for religious here, when you look at the King James Version, that is much more accurate. What Paul says there is, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. That is a better term for what Paul said to them. He wasn't complimenting them. He was saying, you guys are too superstitious here. You see, the word used for religious or superstitious here is made up of two Greek words that together literally mean fearful of demons. Fearful of demons. The word demon, as a matter of fact, is in that Greek word. And so put together with the other word, which, was, which means fearful, superstition is fearful of demons. Now, this is the main reason why Christians are never to be superstitious because we don't have to fear demons. We don't have to fear the devil. We don't have to fear Satan because God is on our side. The best way to know that is for you to be on God's side. But the fact of the matter is, if we fear anything, we fear the Lord. We fear Him in reverence. We fear Him in respect. We fear Him in awe. We look up to Him as a God who needs to have a... We need to have a high view of this God in our lives each and every day. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding and knowledge. It teaches us in the book of Proverbs. We don't have to fear demons. So Christians are never to be superstitious. So I have to tell you, you know, I know that there's some football games on today. 
And I know that some of you, are, you know, you're rabid, rabid fans of whatever team that you, you know, you know, so you, that you like to, you know, cheer on. But be very careful, you know, when you think, well, you know, I've got a, I've got a special pair of socks I wear every time they play a game. That's superstitious. I don't know about you, but, you know, there was a team last week that if you did all that stuff to have them win, they didn't win. And, you know, so forget all the superstitious junk because that's fearful of demons, all right? Got it? If they're going to win, they need to do what they were taught during the week in their practices, okay? And then you just ask God, please help them, all right? That's better than all of this superstition stuff, okay? Got it? All right, we're not making any, we're not calling any names out. There's too many fans of other teams. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> well, first of all, Paul didn't lose his footing by watering down his message, but he wisely uses the understanding of the times and of Athenian history to introduce his message. Remember what the Apostle uh, Peter taught concerning our witness wherever we are and, and, and wherever we go. The witness is this, 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready to give an answer. Paul was always ready. Paul was ready with wisdom. He was ready with with the culture. You know, not to say that we have to know more about the culture and the society in which we live in than the Bible, but we need to know something of it because a lot of it anyway we came out of. You understand? When we were sinners, uh, you know, separated from God, separated from Christ, you know, we were already in that. We know a little bit of it. We don't want to go back to it. But we ought to be aware of it. We ought, we ought to see how Paul used that and his knowledge to minister to these Athenians. You see, some 600 years before Paul stood on this hill called Mars Hill, a terrible plague had struck Athens, and, and a man named Epimenides came up with an idea. And his idea was this. He, he let a flock of sheep loose in the town and, and wherever they would lie down, you know, as in, individual sheep going here and there, wherever they would lie down during this time of plague, wherever these sheep would lie down, they would sacrifice that sheep to the God of the closest temple or shrine. So if they lay down near the, you know, the, a shrine of Zeus or whoever, they would sacrifice that sheep to that particular God. And if there was no temple or shrine close by, they would sacrifice the sheep to the unknown God. There is one reason why there was a, a temple or some kind of a shrine to an unknown God. And Paul picks up on this, you see. And he used this, this in his sermon to these intellectual men. And he says to them, the one whom you worship without knowing, I proclaim him to you. The one you worship without knowing, I know him. And I'm going to tell you about him. And I said that this sermon was a classic sermon of Paul's, and he gives four very important points in this sermon. You know, some have said that the classic sermon is a three-point sermon or whatever, and three points and, and a hymn or whatever. But uh, here, here is this, here's the classic sermon. It begins with this. The God that can be known is Creator. The God that can be known is Creator. Secondly, the God that can be known is Sustainer. The God that can be known is Sustainer. S-U-S-T-A-I-N-E-R. It's not up there. <laughs> The God that can be known is creator, sustainer. The God that can be known is ordainer. And then the fourth one is, you should know Him. That's it. You should know Him. Creator, sustainer, ordainer. This is Paul's outline. And then he says, you should seek Him. You should seek Him. 
Let's begin with what Paul says about God as creator. Look, look at verse 24. Paul said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. These particular Athenians on Mars Hill had no real knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, I say that these particular Athenians didn't have knowledge of the Old Testament because there certainly were Athenians in the city who were going to the synagogue with the Jews who were learning about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there were some who did have a knowledge, but these didn't. And it was something that I'm sure Paul had perceived. And, and so Paul appeals to an older, more universal revelation of God. Something that many cultures, if not most cultures at that time, had, which was the revelation of a God of creation. A revelation of a God of creation. Now, special creation by the God of the Bible is the only true and viable explanation for the universe and our place within it. Now that's a bold statement. And I'll say it again, because I think it's important for you to hear. That special creation by the God of the Bible is the only true and viable explanation for the universe and our place within it. Because you see, when it comes down to it, and, and, and this is not, I'm not saying this so we can argue this. Because it, it, it is always for us as believers a matter of faith in everything. But I'm going to say that when it comes down to it, it really isn't a matter of faith when we talk about creation. Special creation better accounts for the scientific facts that we have discovered over the centuries. And I'll tell you why. Because it's the only account that has an eyewitness. It's the only account that has an eyewitness. Since the time of Darwin, everybody has had to try to speculate that somehow the earth couldn't be as young as, as it really is. And so we have to theorize that uh, the earth is an old earth and that you know you have to go back not only millions of years but possibly billions of years to some kind of, of explosion out in you know that nobody has seen nobody has, has, has ever really figured it all out but you know it, it makes good science fiction those of you that are interested in science fiction one thing that you know is sometimes they apply some science to, to the stories but it's still fiction But here we have an eyewitness account. Very simply, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He was there. And He's telling us. And He's making it clear. Well, just hold on to that thought if you, if you want to argue for this area of science. I want to come back to that in a moment. But the fact that there is a Creator indicates that we are to be accountable to Him. If there is a Creator, we need to be accountable to that Creator because that Creator made us. We are to be accountable to Him. We will one day stand before Him in judgment. This is what we learn from the Word of God. But as Paul looked at the beautiful temples, and, and he may have even at that moment pointed to the Parthenon, some a great architectural structure. As he's doing that and telling them these things, he tells them that the heavens cannot contain God, let alone some building. As awesome as God is as Creator, even the heavens can't contain Him. Paul would write to the Colossian church and he would say to them in, in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And, verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist or are held together. That's speaking of Jesus Christ, by the way. When you look at the context of Colossians chapter 1, it is speaking of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ Himself is the Creator. Paul was very aware of the fact that there was a Creator God who was the one who spoke everything into existence. 
And he said in Psalm 24, verse 1, not, not Paul, but David, Psalm 24, verse 1, and he knew this, Paul did, the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness, in all its fullness, I should say, the world and those who dwell in it. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's. He's created it. It's His. The words of Solomon, after the building of the temple, Second Chronicles 6, verse 18, listen to what he says. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I built. Solomon was aware. Paul was aware. David was aware. The prophets were aware that you cannot contain God who created all things. There's no way to do that. And it is true that not all peoples have had the Scriptures. But all people at all times have nevertheless had a witness to God in creation, in the heavens, and on earth. Practically every society, practically every kind of culture has had some understanding, at least in their minds, of creation and a God that created things. Some even think, you know, in the Hindu uh, philosophy and, and, and religion, you know, that there is a, a God that is a, an elephant, actually, that holds up the earth with his trunk, you know, or whatever. I mean, you know, you can go back to a lot of this weirdness, but nonetheless, everybody has some thought that, you know, there was a God that created all things. But Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, when he writes to them, and I would encourage you to read before this and after this, but because of time, I only want to read this verse. But in Romans 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Whose? God's. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. If we believe that there is a God that created all things, then He is being seen through the things that He made. That is not to say that He is in all things and all things are in Him, in the sense of pantheism. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is that since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So people are without excuse into thinking and see. People today who hold to some kind of evolutionary philosophy are without excuse because of the things that are made, things that cannot be explained. How do you explain the wonderful creation of God? You have to take away a lot of things that, that, that uh, to us are, are just fascinating. Chance cannot create these things. Chance did not create the way that your eyes are functioning today. And I, and I always want to encourage you, when you get an opportunity, whether on the internet or in a dictionary or, a, or an encyclopedia, but look up the human eye, and that alone will tell you, how does that happen by chance? How does it happen by chance? It does not and cannot. And Paul begins with this culture, with this philosophic and intellectual culture, with what they would already know. There's a creator. This God that you don't know can be known because he is a creator and all things are because of him. All that has been created has been created because of him. By his power, by his might and knowledge. And there to be without excuse. Paul goes on to speak of the sustainer. And there in Acts 17, verse 25, he says, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So it isn't just dealing with him being the creator, but now he says that as though, you know, God is not worshipped as though he needs anything from us. Because He gives. He gives life. He gives breath. He gives all things. So it isn't that we provide for God. God provides for us. God doesn't need us. We truly need Him. He is the sustainer. 
Uh, the, the verse I quoted just a moment ago, Colossians 1.17, was written by Paul to say that in Christ all things are held together. All things are held together by Jesus Christ. All things consist. Very important thing for us to understand about the power of Christ in creation. Because it seems to suggest that if the Lord Jesus Christ weren't holding all things together, everything would be flying apart. Now there's some truth to that in science. How is it that we're being held together on this planet? We can talk about the issues of gravity and, and uh, you know, circumventing the, you know, the, the sun and all of that kind of stuff. But how are we held together? Aren't you glad that you don't have to, you know, have a mind blow out of this? But when you sat down on those chairs today, you didn't worry it one bit. But if you take one atom, one nucleus or whatever, out of the, that chair, you'd be sitting on the floor. It's held together by something. All things are held together by Christ. Now, has anybody ever heard of laminin? Laminin. There, there's a, something I, I would encourage you, if, you, if you could get on YouTube, don't watch everything that's on there, but get on YouTube and on the search, type in L-A-M-I-N-I-N, laminin. And you'll see a video by a pastor named Louis Giglio who talks about a molecular scientist coming to him and saying, you need to talk about laminin. You need to preach about laminin. And he said, you know, rather than going to the whole thing, you know, he's kind of like, what are you talking about? But he looked it up. Laminin is, is, a, is a protein in the body that holds the molecules of the body together. When they have looked at laminin under the most powerful electron microscopes, Laminin is seen in the form of a cross. That's what's holding us together. Now when they make their charts, you know, they make them real nice and pretty. They make a pretty cross. But when you see laminin under the, the microscope, it looks like an old rugged cross. How interesting that this verse says that Jesus holds all things together. That's the difference, you see, between integration and disintegration. By the, by the way, integration, there's a, another word that comes from the word integrity. A person of integrity is a person who's held together by his values, by his morals, by, his tru by, by truth. A person of integrity is held together. But there's, a, there's, there, there's an, an opposite to that, and that... And that is disintegration. We see it in the, in the very life of the apostle, or I should say the, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, verse 5. When, when Isaiah has seen, you see, Isaiah has seen the, uh, the Lord in a vision. High and lifted up, and, and the train of God fills the temple where he sees him. And the only response that Isaiah has is to say, Woe is me! For I am undone. And you see the word undone there. Literally in the Hebrew. Literally it means to be disintegrated into billions of pieces. Woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it, and, and it, and it hits Isaiah that what can stand? What of us who of us sinners can stand in the presence of a holy God and not be undone? Integration. Held together. To come to Christ. To have our sins forgiven. We are now held together by the mercy, grace, love and truth of Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God for that, folks. Give thanks to God for that. But I, I mean, I, mean, I didn't... You know, yeah. 
just, just thank Him for it. You know? <laughs> just thank Him for it. You see, we owe our very existence to Him. We breathe because of Him. We somehow have the idea that, that God is only involved in crisis situations. There's a lot of people like that. Everything's cool, God, until I'm in trouble and I'll come to you. Right? I hope that's not your attitude. But we somehow have this idea that God is only involved in crisis situations, usually because we only ask for help during those times. And yet He is continually involved in the very existence of life. James Montgomery Boyce has written this. He said, The fact that we and the world are here, that we are alive, and that we think about both it and ourselves are all due to the sustaining activity of God. The fact that we are even here, the fact that we're in this world, the fact that we're alive, and that we can think about both this world and us being in it, are all due to the sustaining power and activity of God. God is the sustainer. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. But He's not only that. He is also the ordainer. And notice that thirdly, Paul preached that God not only sustains the universe, but He also guides the affairs of men. Verse 26. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined, notice, He, God, has determined that uh, their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Literally what He's saying is, every one of you here in this room lives somewhere, and you live there because God appointed it. Where you live today, you may not like your neighborhood, but that's okay, God put you there. You may not like the fact that your back door is falling apart and you need to go fix it. But you know what? Go fix it because God put you there. Understand this. Even the boundaries of our dwellings. This is how much God is a part of our lives. Now isn't it interesting though, if you go back to the first part of this verse, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Isn't it interesting that modern science is almost as smart as Paul was in the first century? All you scientists out there, come on. Isn't it great to know that modern science, is, modern science is almost as smart as Paul? I'm sure you've read this. Geneticists have proved or have proven that all humans have descended from a single mother. Wow. Paul already knew that. And he told us that about 2,000 years ago. But geneticists are just finding this out. All humans descend from a single mother. Well, Paul already knew that from reading the Hebrew Scriptures, and along with that knowledge, he also knew who the Father was in both their names. Adam, Eve. He knew this. Oh, by the way, this also teaches us something of great importance and great value. We are not descendants of apes or monkeys. Anybody want to be? I don't want to be. I'll be scratching all the time. We're not descendants of grapes, of apes or monkeys or grapes. <laughs> Nor are we the product of random chance processes. But I have to say this, we have to be honest, we're all descendants of that great dysfunctional family, Adam and Eve. We learn about their dysfunctionality in Genesis chapter 3. That's why we were all born in sin. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus did what He did for us. The fact of the matter is, we can be transformed into the image of God through Jesus Christ. Something that we need to remember. When Adam and Eve were created, 
and, and this is not how you read it, but this is what you understand as you read through the scriptures. That when God created us, He created us in His image, which was spirit, soul, body. When we sinned, the most important aspect of our lives became the body, the flesh. And then the soul and the spirit, which were dead, though the body was alive. But when we came to Christ, we became alive again, born again. And now the image is back to spirit, soul, body. Because the spirit is alive in Christ. The soul where we, where we meet with God and our understanding of things and our understanding of God has become clear. And, and now the body is subjected to the Lord. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20-22, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, speaking of those who have died in Christ. For since by man, Adam, came death, by man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So what was dead is now alive. And it doesn't matter what you look like or felt like at uh, 5, 6, or 7 o'clock this morning when your alarm went off. Even if you might not have looked real alive, guess what? You're alive in Christ. And that's what matters, folks. And I hope and pray that you are alive in Christ. That your lives are changed because of what Christ has done for you. This, this thought here of God being the ordainer and what we've read in verse 26, some theologians have said that, that the guidance that is referred to here is, is the hidden counsels of, of God. In other words, He hasn't revealed these counsels in Scripture as He has other things. But, but understand it this way. We don't know fully what tomorrow holds, do we? We may have plans for tomorrow, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. As a matter of fact, in about 15 minutes, we, we, we know we're going to go out those doors, but we really don't know what even the next half hour has to hold. There are some things we don't know. But we can be assured of one thing. God has ordained all things. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. So we can go out that door as Christians knowing that God is in control. We don't know fully what tomorrow holds. We don't know completely what God has determined to do in national affairs. We are going to vote in, in a month from, from now. We ask you to pray about this. We ask, you to, we ask you to consider these things intelligently, discerningly, praying for our country and all. But we still have to vote. There's still an outcome. We don't go by polls, you see. God is still in control. As Christians, we believe that God is in control of all that happens. He has made plans and has determined whatever will come to pass. God ultimately knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. We can trust God because of that. And the psalmist did. Psalm 33, verses 8 through 12. Listen to what he says. Let all the earth fear the Lord. We know right now that all the earth does not fear the Lord. But one day all the earth will fear the Lord. But let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. What does that sound like? Genesis chapter 1. Light be and light was. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people He has chosen as His own inheritance. So Paul has spoken directly to the Athenians, to the Epicureans, to the Stoics and all the other philosophers and said, God, the God who can be known is the Creator. He is the sustainer. He is the ordainer. 
And I got one more thing to tell you. You should seek this God that can be known. You should seek Him. Because he says in verse 27, let me, let me read verse 26 and 27 together. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, speaking of Christ, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now if God has revealed himself to us in creation, as he has, and if God has sustained creation and us, as he does, and if God has determined the boundaries of our lives and our destinies, as he has, as he does, and as he will, then it follows that we have an obligation to seek God out and find him. We have the obligation to seek God out. If he has done all that he's done as creator, sustainer, and ordainer, then we are obligated to seek God out and find him. God has revealed himself so that we might seek him out. One thing that he says to his own people in Jeremiah 29 verse 13 is, And you will seek me and, know, and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Did we find the Lord? Did you find the Lord when you sought him out? Because if you really sought the Lord, you would find him because you would search for him with all your heart. But that also throws a, a, something into my mind that says, A lot of people aren't really searching for God with all their hearts. They're searching for something, but they're not searching for God with all their hearts. And it burdens me to think that we could come to even that we could even come to church half heartedly. But how how can we come to church half heartedly and worship the Lord? It just doesn't make sense. I don't know about you. But I know one thing. I, I came here to seek the face of God. I came here to know God. I came here to be in His presence. I came here to receive from the Lord. I came here to worship Him, to praise Him, to thank Him, to give Him all the honor and glory for all that He's ever done. I know that I'm not alone. But you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, why did I come here today? Why am I here? I mean, some people might say, oh, that's a good place to spend an hour and a half. I don't care about the hour and a half, and I don't care about the, you know, the average seven years of our life on this earth. I care about what you're going to do and where you're going to be for the rest of eternity. That's what I care about, and that's what we ought to care about. That's what Paul cared about, you see. By the way, it's amazing how much Paul knew of the Greek culture and society. Remember that... Uh, Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. Don't forget that. Grew up in Tarsus. Well, he wasn't in Jerusalem. He didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in the midst of the Greek and, and Roman culture. And he was taught that way. And he learned things that way. And understood things that way. But Paul, first of all, used a term that Homer, and you all remember Homer, the, the writer, the Greek writer. Uh, I'm not talking about Homer Simpson or Homer and Jethro for the older crowd. But you know Homer. Okay? He, he, he used a, uh, Paul used a term that Homer used in the well-known story of the Cyclops. The giant Cyclops. The one-eyed giant Cyclops had captured Odysseus and his men. Well, Odysseus had gotten the Cyclops drunk, actually. This is the story. I'm not, you know. But, he, but when he got him drunk, he proceeded to blind him with a sharp stake. He only had one eye, so hey, get the, get the eye, you know. <laughs> one big eye. And Odysseus wanted to sneak out of the cave and with his men but, but, uh, that they were in, but, but it was difficult because 
the Cyclops, as big as he was, was groping around and feeling after Odysseus. Paul uses the exact same phrase. When he says to them, there, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. Use the same term. There's a blind cyclops looking, groping to find Odysseus. It's interesting that in our sin, we're as blind as the blinded cyclops. And yet because of creation, we have an obligation to grope after God and find Him, though we cannot see Him. And even when our eyes are opened by the the Holy Spirit to receive Christ, is God a God that can be seen? That's where we live by faith. And we trust that now what we see, we see with eyes of faith. For one day we will see Him. We will see Him as He is. We will see Him in all His glory. And we will have eyes that will be able to see Him. But if you haven't found Him, you need to seek Him. And find Him. Because you search for Him with all your heart. Secondly, Paul quoted from two Greek poets, Aratus and Cleanthes, both of, of whom had written in their works, for we are also his offspring. So what is Paul saying to them because of this stuff that he's bringing up and they're hearing and saying, well, this guy knows a little bit about us. What is he saying to them? He says, all right, so if that's what you have believed, here it is. This God who can be known isn't like gold or silver or stone. He isn't made by man's hands. He's, he, and, and, and you know what? He's overlooked all of this ignorance of yours, but He still commands you to repent. He still commands you to turn from your sins. A day is coming when He will judge all things in righteousness by the man whom He has appointed, anointed, and ordained, His only begotten Son who is risen from the dead. I added a little bit there, but I don't think that Paul would have, would have kept it so ethereal. <laughs> he knew exactly what he was saying, and they knew exactly that he was speaking of Jesus Christ. By the way, by offspring of God, Paul didn't mean every human being is a child of God. His context, remember, was creation. Every person receives life from God and is made in the image of God. That image was marred by sin, as we spoke of earlier, and so we must be saved by Jesus Christ. And He is not like their idols that they have made with their hands. And one good reason, the psalmist has already told us in Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are just like them. In other words, you're as dead as your idols. If the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... The God who created all things isn't your God. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. And he's just wanting to make it clear. You, you can't trust in stone. You can't trust in gold or silver. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. So Paul makes clear three reasons to repent. Three reasons to repent. First of all, God's patience. God has been patient with you. He has overlooked this ignorance. So let His patience lead you to repentance. He has been patient with you, but now He's commanding you to repent. That's the second thing. God's patience is the first. God commands repentance. That's the second reason to repent. Because God commands it. And thirdly, God has appointed a final day of reckoning when Christ shall judge. So three clear reasons to repent. God has been patient with you, but 
He's overlooked your ignorance. But secondly, God has commanded repentance. You need to repent of your sins. And thirdly, repent because a day of judgment is coming. What is the result of all of this? Let's close with verses 32 to 34. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. They mocked him. They laughed at him. Just like today, when some of you tell others about Jesus and they laugh at you. It happens still. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The result, they mocked, they mocked Paul, the resurrection. But Paul's been through this before. You know, it's funny that they mocked the idea of a resurrection. It really is, because, you know, here was a bunch of supposed intellectuals who believed to some extent in fanciful, fanciful mythologies. And, and I'm sure most of you have read, the, the, you know, at least read a little bit about Greek mythology and, and all the, 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 the weird uh, creatures that are in Greek mythology. They're pretty weird. But these guys are intellectuals, and they believed in that. But they couldn't hang with the resurrection. How interesting. And when confronted with the resurrection of Jesus, which is a proven historical fact, by the way, they treated it as if it were a myth. So what do people do today because they don't want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You have the, you know, the Vinci Code, and then you have, you know, the, the, somebody found the box of bones. Maybe those are the bones of Jesus. Well, Jesus wasn't put in a box. And they can't find the box anyway. There's no box. But if you go to the tomb, you'll realize that the tomb's empty. So, hey, come on. All right, so... That's what people are doing today. What does Paul do? The the important point that we made, get stirred, but don't lose your footing. This was not a watered down message. He was speaking to the philosophers. He was speaking to bring in their minds the thought that there was something greater than their Epicurean and Stoic philosophies. Epicureans, do everything you can to get happiness because the gods aren't going to be there with you. The Stoics, well, just let things happen. When they happen, they're, they're bad, they happen, well, you're good, you're just going to die anyway. That, that was the basis of their philosophies. And Paul said, there is a God. He's alive. He's among us. He cares. He ordains things. He does things. He sustains things. He gives life. But He stays among His people who believe and trust. So every sentence refuted some aspect of their prevailing philosophies and religions. Paul never lost his footing in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know this because some men joined him, others believed. Two were named, others were with them. That tells me there was more than three. Who knows how many, but it was more than just three. Dionysius, Damaris, and others. Could have been four. Or it could have been 14. But others received the message. And I would say that after they had come to be with Paul, Paul began to reveal the beauty of the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel. You see, Paul said in his life, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, if we preach anything, we are to preach the cross of Jesus Christ. The implication is strong. Somewhere down the line, Paul did not water down the message, but had to get their attention. You see, it's important to get their attention. My last question to you is as some join Paul will you join him if you don't know Christ today will you join him will you see how Paul has made it clear that there is a God who 
is not only powerful to create all things, but is one who sustains all things and ordains all things. And he's a God to be known. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that today. But I'm going to ask you to take an important step of faith. And that is, when the time comes that you make that move, there'll be some people up here in front available to pray. And you can come and tell them, I want to receive Jesus Christ today. Simple. The step that you take is not what saves you. God's already been working on that. See, we don't save ourselves. He saves us. He puts us where we can hear. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Let's pray.